Welcome to the next track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams, and I'm Kirk McElhern. You can find episode show notes, past episode archives, and listener discussions at our website, thenexttrack.com. And in between episodes, follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. We've finally reached the point in the history of this podcast that we can run our annual Christmas episode. This is the first time that we've ever done this. We've never rerun an episode, but this time of year, I think, calls for traditions. You, there are some things you do once a year at Christmas time, and now we are going to run this Christmas episode every year. It's part of the tradition, right? Well, are we going to do it every year? Because oh, we I, We got an hour. I just said we were going to do it. Well, no, you, we can change because we did this two years ago, and... The year before that and the year after that, we did Christmas gift guide episodes. Right. So should we alternate one year with the Christmas music and one year with the Christmas gift guide? Okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm in the now, so this, yeah. this is what we've decided to do this year. So I think that's okay. a good plan. We can stick to that plan. If we want to veer from it and, and at future Yuletides, then we can. Okay. I think the episode was so good that there's no point not running it again. If only because it really took me a long time to do the show notes for that episode two years ago, and I don't want to have to go through a long process like that again. That's a good excuse. That's a good reason to rerun a podcast. So here it is, ladies and gentlemen, our annual, perhaps, Christmas episode. It's that time of year again. It's time for Christmas music. It's time for wall-to-wall -wall Christmas music. Well, you know, I kind of like wall-to-wall -wall Christmas music. I don't like hearing it wherever I go, but as far as in the house, I do like it on, like, sort of like as a Muzak effect. I used to make uh, mixtapes back in the day. I would make cassettes of, of Christmas LPs, and then later on I got a five-disc CD changer so that I could have a miraculous three and a half hours of shuffled Music from uh, CDs. You had one of those. Oh, yeah, five discs. I never had one. Oh, well, you probably didn't have as much fun as those of us who did. I had a three-CD changer once, but I got that so I could listen to an opera without having to get up and change the CDs, which, when you think of it, is pretty lazy. It is lazy to a degree, but it's also convenience. I mean, at Christmas time, you're decking the halls, and so you don't want to be bothered changing CDs in the CD player. So getting a ton of music at once was good. So I started collecting a lot of Christmas CDs. Um, and then when I started ripping CDs, I found that, oh my goodness, I can have three days of Christmas music if I want. I can shuffle it. I can have all of this music in iTunes, and I can have days of Christmas music that didn't repeat. But the unusual thing that would happen is that sometime in April, I, I would always hear some Christmas music sneaking into my other playlists. And there's got to be a German word for this. It's that feeling, that first second, then you hear jingle bells in the middle of summer, and you get that fight-or-flight response of, what am I doing playing Jingle Bells? Oh my goodness, what a, I, I hope nobody's listening. Why is it that Christmas music is so beloved and so adored and so it, it, people have such enthusiasm for holiday music at the holidays, but any other time of year, it's almost as if you've committed some kind of cultural sin? And I wonder why that is. I think it's the brainwashing that this music is designed to make us feel like spending money it's it's just pure capitalist musical propaganda and if we hear it at any other time of the year when we don't want to spend that much money as you say it provokes that flight or fight response and the first thing you think is you check your wallet to make sure your credit card's still there 
Well, maybe, but I also think it's it's really uh, ingrained because from the time I was a little kid, I was always told that this music is only played at Christmas, and when the tree comes down and the decorations go away, the music goes away too. And so when you hear it suddenly out of context at some other part of the year, it's... Um, Doug it, Van Winkle fell asleep for six months and woke up, and all of a sudden it's December. That's the feeling. I mean, it's that disorienting when you do hear Christmas music outside of the holiday period of, of the year. But it's really interesting. It's really the only kind of music that has a seasonal shelf life. You can play it as much as you want during the season, but it's it's bad form. It's illegal <laughs> to play it outside of the holiday. And it's very interesting. It's the only kind of music that's like that. I mean, sure, you might say, well, there is some Easter holiday music, and I suppose there are Thanksgiving songs and Halloween songs, but nothing like Christmas, where there's another period of the year where you can only play this kind of music. Yeah, we could say that there's Easter music, but this is mostly church-related music. You know, Bach's Passion, the St. Matthew Passion, the St. John Passion. These works are performed very often in churches over here, and probably in big cities in the United States. You can't swing a cat over here without finding a passion around Easter time. Right. And I suspect that the idea of seasonal music comes from the church and the liturgical seasons that had specific music for each one. Now, we're not music historians, but it's my understanding that you had pre-Christian European traditions like the Yuletide in Northern Europe, which is essentially a celebration of the winter solstice and the longest night of the year. And for agrarian cultures in Northern Europe, the position of the sun and the weather and the climate, they were of utmost importance. So here in the dead of winter, you celebrate life and light prevailing over the darkness with a tree that uh, that stays green all year long when other plants and trees are lifeless. And there's an optimism and a hopefulness for the coming year and longer days are ahead. And of course, the Yuletide was merged with Christmastide when Christianity was brought into the mix. And so you get a mashup of the Christian and, for lack of a better word, pagan traditions. And then later Christmas music moves from outside of the church in the form of secular caroling. And uh, now we have radio stations that play Christmas music 24-7 in the month or so or, or around the holidays. Well, it's interesting. You, po you point out caroling and wassailing. It is a very public activity still here. I don't recall this past Christmas, but the year before in the previous house I lived in, carolers came in front of my house and knocked on the door and sang. There were about eight people. The, the amateur choir is a big deal here. There are performances of Handel's Messiah that are held over here with hundreds, even thousands of singers. And at one point, the Royal Albert Hall did something with some 2,000 singers performing the work. Basically, you buy a ticket in the audience, and it's just you know, sing along with Mitch as everyone goes through the piece, and people know the piece because they are parts of amateur choirs in their town, in their village, and in, in their local church. So music is very important at Christmas, and it, and it could have something to do with the darkness and the night and the cold temperatures, and, you know, they're singing to, to, to brighten up life. You know, the other interesting thing about church music is that I was reminded of the show we did with Dave Weigel when we talked about progressive rock a few months ago, and that is there's a component of progressive rock, especially in British progressive rock, that comes from church music and church choir singing. Yeah, the, that church music that, that found its way into progressive rock, the choral music, the, the same type of harmonies, the same type of sound that you got in that choral music 
was replicated in a lot of progressive rock. I spent a year in Norway about 30 years ago, and I remember Christmas time, there was a lot of music as well. I don't remember exactly what kind. You know, they have their own traditional Scandinavian music. Obviously, people listen to Bing Crosby pretty much everywhere because that's become the sort of norm for Christmas music. But they did have a great deal of music of their own, a, a traditional music. And in fact, we mentioned that ECM Records is streaming their catalog recently. They have a few recordings by some artists who perform traditional Scandinavian songs. And I'll look them up and put them in the show notes. We don't get a lot of uh, Scandinavian Christmas music over here. You, you don't. No. You don't. It's not, it doesn't make it on American Idol, does it? No, it doesn't. But it is amazing what... The amount of Christmas music that you hear nowadays, um, in fact, you hear so much of it, there's a term that's used to describe the onslaught of Christmas music. It's called Christmas creep. And in radio, we used to start sprinkling in the Christmas music probably after Thanksgiving in late November, early December. And of course, the advertisers liked it as well because it reminded everyone, as you said earlier, to get their wallets out. But I remember when I first started working in radio in the early 80s, there wasn't a lot of hip Christmas music. Um, mostly it was what I would say is square Christmas music. You'd hear, you know, Bing Crosby, of course, and a lot of music from the 40s and 50s, and um, Elvis's uh, Christmas album and Phil Spector's Christmas album was popular to play, but there wasn't, there wasn't as much popular rock music to play. And so we had to rely on like a lot of novelty music. And we didn't play a lot of Christmas music. We just would, as I said, sprinkled it in. Didn't that change when Bruce Springsteen did his song? Well, I, I think that's when it began. Um, Springsteen recorded Santa Claus is Coming to Town in 1975, but didn't release it. And did release it on a Sesame Street album called In Harmony. And it was this was a collection of children's songs. And his was the only Christmas song on it. And whenever Christmas rolled around... Um, that would be a song we would definitely play. But I think what had an even bigger effect was the advent of the CD in 1985. In 1984, you had Band-Aid, and suddenly releasing music at Christmas time for charity was a cool thing to do. And there was a, a couple of albums ca that came out. One was A Very Special Christmas, which raised money for Special Olympics. And that had people like The Pretenders and John Cougar Mellencamp and another Bruce Springsteen song. And those were songs that we could play. And suddenly you started seeing a lot of these charity-oriented compilation albums coming out. A lot of uh, CD companies um, licensed and reissued a lot of music. For instance, Rhino had put out... Um, the Cool Yule series, which was a lot of reissued retro Christmas music. And another thing that started to happen was that artists released Christmas songs knowing that they would get airplay at Christmas time, which is the time of year when most CDs was being sold, so they could have something on the radio and not necessarily have to have a full-fledged album out and still get regular airplay. And another thing that would happen is that maybe you were lucky enough to live in a radio market where a radio station would play nothing but Christmas music for 24 hours, the 24 hours of commercial-free Christmas. And that became so popular that some radio stations were actually able to do it for weeks at a time, playing nothing but Christmas music, holiday music, from Thanksgiving right through Christmas. Well, it primes the pump. It gets you prepared for the celebration. And they have to keep playing it for a week after Christmas as well because they have to bring you down slowly. I'm not a radio listener. I never listen to radio here. I don't even put on radio in the car. 
and I haven't listened to radio in regularly in more than 30 years uh, since I lived in the States. But for me, the, the Christmas music I would hear would always be in stores and shopping malls. You couldn't get away from it. And it wouldn't necessarily be recognizable artists, but it would be recognizable songs. As you said earlier, these are the songs we heard when we were kids, and it's the same songs over and over to remind us, you know, here we are again, here we are again, yet another Christmas. Well, we're trained that way. Christmas on, Christmas off. It's almost a Pavlovian. Well, your, your reaction to hearing Jingle Bells in July, that would be a great title for a movie, Jingle Bells in July. But your reaction there is, is exactly what it is. You immediately assume... Oh my God, I have to go shopping. I have to get all this food. I have to plan, you know, I, I have to wash the windows because the family's coming to visit, all these sorts of things. Well, I think I would characterize it more as like a mini culture shock, but it, it is stressful. It's a very stressful time for a lot of people, though, who do receive family. So there's another landmark Christmas song, and that's Do They Know It's Christmas, the 1984 song by Band-Aid, which featured 7,342 different pop artists, each singing one phoneme in the song and they managed to mix it together so it only sounded like about 50 of them yeah. um that was a huge hit you know everyone from uh, you know when when you think about it first of all was bob geldof anyone important in 1984 everyone had forgotten the boomtown rats i'll admit that midjor was was surfing on a wave of, of ultravox around that time but bob geldof well he did seem to be the only one that stepped up to uh you know this feed africa thing that's what i'm saying but he wasn't anyone important in the music business the boomtown rats hadn't been selling out stadiums in fact they didn't exist anymore but this record has just to name a few it's got bono and adam clayton from u2 it's got phil collins it's got johnny fingers from the boomtown rats along with bob geldof it's got Simon LeBon from Duran Duran. Remember them? Duran Duran. Steve Norman from Spandau Ballet. This is really dated when you think about it. It's got Sting from The Police, if you remember The Police. Paul Weller, Paul Young, Karen Woodward from Bananarama, Chris Cross, another Ultravox musician. And this song by Band-Aid, Do They Know It's Christmas, certainly was the influence for the later song, We Are the World, which, which I guess created the genre of the multi-artist charity single. Oh, yeah, without question. I mean, we've already mentioned a special Christmas for Special Olympics, but I remember uh, CD compilations for AIDS research. Um, Band-Aid did one in 85 called One Year on Feed the World. Mm -hmm. um, didn't Farm Aid do a single as well? I don't think so, but obviously Farm Aid was inspired by Live Aid, which was produced by the people who did Band-Aid. So it was definitely inspirational. But there have been a number of other similar things. Someone did a record here last year, and it totally escapes me. I just remember seeing on the BBC News showing the people who were going to record this song, and it was for some charity, but apparently it wasn't popular enough for me to remember what charity it was. But I think this concept was sort of consecrated with Do They Know It's Christmas. Oh, yeah. No question. So you've been listening to some interesting Christmas music this weekend. Well... You you pointed out to me, you said, here's my least favorite Christmas song. and My least favorite was, Christmas album. Yeah, it's it's the Bob Dylan album. Uh, I forgot what it's called. Christmas in the Heart, 2009. And you directed me to a, uh, a version of uh, Must Be Santa that he did. And he also did a video for it. And so I'm going to, ch I checked this out and I thought, this is probably just going to be absurd, Bob Dylan. I'm going to hate it. And I absolutely love it because it's Must Be Santa, which was originally done by Mitch Miller, and it's a sing-along song. And 
Bob Dylan does a Kletzmer version of it. And the video takes place in this huge house. It's a huge Christmas party going on, and everybody is dancing and singing to this song. It's, it's just a joyous, reckless abandon, uh, high enth highly enthusiastic Kletzmer Christmas song. It's just hilarious and really wonderful. I think it's going to be my featured Christmas song this year, I think. I had never heard it before. It's just absolutely wonderful. And I, I'm a nut for Kletzmer music anyway. I just think that stuff is great. But uh, this was a lot of fun. Well, you haven't mentioned the, the weirdness of the rest of the video. Well, it's, it's really tough to describe. There's all kinds of crazy things going on in the house. Um, not the least well, it's of... it's just particularly Bob Dylan's persona. Well, not the least of which is Bob Dylan's persona. He is wearing this blonde wig. Um, and at first I thought he was trying to look like Martha Stewart or something like that, having a house party. But he's, he appears at random points through the video carrying a book or a Bible or something. Don't really know what's going on. In meantime, there's lots of chaos happening. People are running around, throwing things at each other, while other people are dancing and jumping and having a good time. It's a very, very strange uh, video. Worth noting that all the royalties from this album went to a couple of charities, Feeding America in the USA, Crisis in the UK, and the World Food Program. But I do remember when that album came out and um, people having a kind of a mixed reaction to it because... He does do some sincere versions of Christmas songs, and this is before, I guess, he, he got into the crooning uh, stage of his career, so they, they, can't, they didn't come across very well. But I do remember that album coming out and, and not being, uh, well, you know, it just goes to show you that, first of all, Bob Dylan can do whatever he wants, but also anybody can put a Christmas <laughs> album out and just say, it's Christmas, and people will eat it up. I mean, I, I found myself consuming lots of Christmas music. Once I determined that I could have, you know, four or five days of music, I didn't care what, what the Christmas music was. I just wanted as much variety as possible. So I tried to grab as much different uh, Christmas music as possible. I was borrowing CDs and ripping stuff and just going crazy with it. I think you made an interesting point about Dylan, this, this predating his, as you say, crooning phase, which his last three albums have been these old standard songs. Worth noting that his latest album, Triplicate, was nominated for a Grammy. I, I think he might have been on the way to that vocal style in 2009 when he recorded this album, but he didn't do it very well. His voice just was wrong. I think the production wasn't ideal. And in these three more recent albums, he really has developed a style because the way these Christmas songs is presented, the, the arrangements, it's very similar to the Frank Sinatra songs that he's recorded. Well, you know, the thing about Christmas albums is, for the most part, not a lot of thought goes into them. I mean, they're not recorded as concept albums. In a lot of cases, they're just done for fans or for charity. They don't invest a lot of money in making them because they generally don't sell a lot. Um, they're recorded in the summertime, so no one's much in the Christmas mood when you're, when you're making them. So I guess in order to make them fun, uh, in, and in particular in this case with Bob Dylan's album, um, he had some fun with the Christmas songs. Well, Jethro Tull did a Christmas album in 2003, and that was interesting, but it kind of fit with Ian Anderson's progress of his his folk roots and all. And, and it wasn't a surprising album. It didn't have any strange vocals or anything, and a lot of it was instrumental. There was also a live recording made in 2008 that's released together with a later version of this album, where it features choirs singing traditional songs like Silent Night and O Come All Ye Faithful, along with people reading texts and uh, an introduction by a vicar, which gave it a very English tone. But there aren't that many 
popular artists, aside from all the earlier ones, the Johnny Mathis, the Frank Sinatra, there aren't many popular artists who've done Christmas albums. There are plenty of Christmas singles and Christmas songs, and, and we'll link to a Christmas playlist on Apple Music, and I'm looking at names like Maria Carey and Kelly Clarkson and Josh Groban and Elton John, Ario Speedwagon, really? John Lennon, of course, you know, the famous Happy Christmas War is Over, which is real, one of the better Christmas songs. And of course, there's Bing Crosby and there's Johnny Mathis and Elvis Presley. One cannot talk about Christmas music without mentioning the ultimate holiday film. Die, Die Hard. Hard. <laughs> because of the Christmas theme in it, because I think in the first three Die Hard movies, they all take place at Christmas time. And the credit music in, in Die Hard is Dean Martin singing Let It Snow, which, it, which is one of those great classic Christmas songs with the smooth delivery and the arrangement that makes you, even if you're in the tropics, slide into a snow-covered mood. I have to admit that, that I can watch Die Hard at other times of the year and not get that Christmas culture shock. My favorite Christmas movie is It's a Wonderful Life. In this establishment, we serve hard drinks to tough guys who want to get drunk fast. Get me. I'm handing out wings. That's my modest impression of Sheldon Leonard at Martini's Bar. I think I could watch It's a Wonderful Life anytime, but there are some things you can't watch anytime, like How the Grinch Stole Christmas or Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. I'm trying to think if I ever let my daughter watch that. Any, I, I, may, I don't think so. I, I think you would have to teach the kids that that's just not allowed. Right, like our parents taught us. Like It's like the... For me, when I was young, the, the thing we had, obviously, was the Charlie Brown Christmas special. Right, right. You couldn't really watch that in August. It wouldn't be right, would it? Well, it only aired once a year when we were kids, so you you couldn't watch it other times. And it's interesting that the music of that Christmas special by Vince Guaraldi and his trio has taken on a sort of iconic Christmassy sound. Mm -hmm. It's instrumental music. It doesn't sound anything at all like... The, the sort of choral music that we would think of as Christmas, but it's just... Well, it's, it's, it's bossa nova music. It's not that. It's just linked to Charlie Brown so deeply that you can't imagine the one without the other. And by the way, listen to some of Vince Guaraldi's other recordings that aren't Charlie Brown soundtracks. He was a wonderful musician. You know, um, there was an interesting study done. Um, somebody had looked at... We'll have a link to this article in the show notes. Somebody had done a study of when do people who stream start listening to Christmas music? And they found that by week 36 in the year, which is September, they start to see a notable, noticeable increase in Christmas music plays starting in September. So what they theorize is that people are getting ready. They're getting their, their Christmas music arsenals ready in September uh, to unleash after Thanksgiving. But they also found another interesting thing, that Mariah Carey song, what is it, All I Want for Christmas is You? They saw it rise in September and right through Christmas and then start to fall off in January. And then for some reason, there was a spike in July of this Christmas, fantastic Christmas song. And they couldn't figure out why the Mariah Carey song is popular in July. I, I have no explanation for it. I just thought it was a very strange anomaly. Well, if people are streaming this music starting in September, it doesn't mean they're necessarily choosing it. It could simply be that the streaming services are starting to insert this music into playlists. And that that is the sort of tipping point that gets people to maybe seek out more Christmas music at that time. That could be too. That could be too. Because they have an interest in getting people into that mood. Because I would think that come Christmas time, people are more likely to put the music on 
with a, a very long playlist and just let it play instead of skipping around looking for other hits to listen to. Exactly. That's what I'd prefer to do. All right. So you're the Christmas music specialist. You've huh? put this on the radio and all. Let, let's let's hear some of your favorite Christmas songs. Well, in general, I don't like novelty comedy Christmas songs. I don't. There are songs that we play over here every year that I cannot stand. Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer, the Hanukkah song by Adam Sandler I don't like. Um, the 12 Pains of Christmas by Bob Rivers. I don't like any of these comedy songs, but I do like the Kinks' Father Christmas, which ostensibly is a very happy song and kind of funny. It's about thugs beating up a, a department store Santa Claus and taking his money. But um, it's also an indictment of the commercialism of Christmas, and it has in its bridge the actual sentiment that gets me all the time. Just remember the kids who've got nothing when you're drinking down your wine. And I always used to get a thrill out of playing that song because, one, it was pretty rockin', and <laughs> you got to play it once a year. And it's the kinks. And, you know, the world needs more kinks music. One of my favorites has got to be Nat King Cole, Chestnuts Roasting on an Open Fire. I don't know why. My parents must have had a record of this. This is the kind of thing that you're imprinted when you're two years old and you hear this music. But that one, to me, is the one that just sounds like Christmas. Well, you know, the actual title of that song is The Christmas Song. It was written by Mel Torme. Is it? Yeah. One that I've liked for a long time is Greg Lake's I Believe in Father Christmas. Now, this was released as a single in 1975. This was the heyday of Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. And for them to come out with, well, for one of their members to come out with a song which is just an acoustic ballad was really surprising. Interestingly, Wikipedia says that although it is often categorized as a Christmas song, this was not Lake's intention. He said he wrote the song to protest at the commercialization of Christmas. But doesn't the song being about Christmas just kind of de facto make it a Christmas song? It's kind of hard to record a Christmas song and get people to believe that it's an anti-Christmas song. But it really is a beautiful song. And I think one reason I liked it is it reminds me of another of my favorite ELP songs, which is Lucky Man, which is a Greg Lake acoustic guitar song as well. And there's a very similar sound between the two. I think it's one of the reasons we played it on the radio. It sounded familiar. It sounded like Lucky Man. Um, I'm going to hate to admit this, and you're going to cringe when I tell you, but I have to admit to liking the first Mannheim Steamroller album. Now, I know what you're thinking, but when I was in radio, we had, I mentioned a few weeks ago that we used to have trouble finding instrumental music, and we used to use a lot of jazz music for commercial backgrounds. Well, the problem was even worse at Christmas because everybody wanted something cool to use for their background music on commercials. And there just wasn't a lot of cool sounding instrumental music until Mannheim Steamroller came out with, uh, with their albums. And I have to admit, some of the, some of the arrangements of the songs are, are pretty stirring. Carol of the Bells is one that I remember that they did that I, I really like. Um, and then who's the other band? The Trans-Siberian Orchestra came out with similar uh, sounding Christmas music and that that's, is still popular. Or despised, whatever. I must say, I've looked through a number of lists of of Christmas songs by rock artists and pop artists and all that, and there aren't really many that grab me very much. You know, it really is, to me, those classic songs from Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra. For me, the Christmas songs have to sound old. And even while I can appreciate Bruce Springsteen, it just doesn't sound old. I mean, it's a good song, but doesn't sound Christmassy to me. It sounds like a bar song. I have to admit that I did listen critically to a lot of Christmas music in preparing for this episode. And frankly, a lot of Christmas music is just pretty darn cheesy. Um, but I don't listen to it that way. 
I just throw all the songs into a Christmas playlist and play them in the background. I just uh, set up my house so that I can now stream throughout the house for the first time ever. So I'm just playing Christmas music all the time now. And I don't get a ch- I only hear snippets of it. I only hear little bits of songs here and there. I don't really just sit down and listen to it. And how does your family feel about this? Well, most of them aren't here during the day. Well, they have it because they won't know because they won't be able to turn it off. They won't figure out how to turn it off. Well, they don't know how. It's all through my account on my computers and no one's allowed into the Batcave. A a quick shout out for a 1981 album that was released by the Belgian record label Les Disques du Crépuscule. They were linked with Factory Records and it had songs by groups like Section 25 and Aztec Camera and Tuxedo Moon and Derudi Column. It's a really interesting record. It's not very Christmassy. None of the songs really sound Christmassy. And and I think what they were doing at the time, if you remember back then, a lot of these smaller labels made these compilation albums to get us to discover the artists and the labels. And I think that was why they did this. It was recently re-released in a two-disc version with some other songs from around the same time and that don't really seem that Christmassy, but at, at back in the day, it was a Christmas album that I bought that I could listen all year round because it didn't sound Christmassy. Oh, covert Christmas music listening. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I think we did a pretty good job talking about Christmas music without actually playing any because of licensing issues we can't, but we do have in the show notes a bunch of songs that you can find, a playlist that we've linked to, and interesting articles uh, about Christmas music in general. In the meantime, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Kwanzaa. We want to be inclusive. Right. Happy Holidays, and thank you so much for listening to the next track. So even though we've rerun a previous episode, we wanted to make sure that we had fresh next track picks for this episode. So, Kirk, have you got one this week? Yes, I do. Not a Christmas pick. And in fact, when we first ran this Christmas episode, episode 82, it was not a Christmas pick either. When I browse Apple Music, I'm still in the phase of building my library because what it was in 2015, Apple Music was launched and we were both kind of slow adopters. So every once in a while, I'll find my favorite artist and I'll go through and I'll add all their albums to my Apple Music library. And I don't necessarily listen to them, but every once in a while, For You pops something up and says, well, hey, have you listened to this one? And just a few days ago, it came up with a Harold Budd record called Bandits of Stature that was released in 2012. Now, I admit I had never heard this before. And it is an extraordinary record. The record label, Darla, describes it as 14 elegantly simple avant-garde string quartets, each with his own unique and subtle tension and abstraction and sometimes pastoral, but as often otherworldly mood shining through. Someone had one of those bags with a bunch of words they pull out to put on a refrigerator there to come up with it. Um, It's fascinating. If you know Harold Budd's music, going back from the 1970s when he made a couple of records with Brian Eno, a lot of his music is just solo piano, sometimes with processing and treatment, sometimes with a couple of other instruments and synthesizers. And this is with an actual string quartet. They're called the Formalist Quartet, which I think is a pretty good name. Harold Budd plays on one track, Veil of Orpheus, parenthesis, Cy Twombly's. He plays piano. Anyway, it's fascinating. I've been listening to this on repeat for the past four or five days. It's really fascinating. It's got, Harold Budd has this way of choosing these chords that are really interesting. And 
I know not enough about music. They're probably like minor ninth suspended fourth or something. You know, you can just feel that there are a couple notes out of place, but that fit really well. And a lot of this music is chordal. Some of it is melodic. Check it out. It's called Bandits of Stature. It's music by Harold Budd, played by the Formalist Quartet. Doug, do you have something a little bit easier to describe? I don't think so. (laughs) As you know, I don't buy box sets. I mean, I have a few large expanded editions of things, but I don't make a habit of buying these things. I'm really not interested in in all the flotsam and jetsam from a recording session, unless it's for a record I really like. And this week, the Zappa Family Trust will be releasing the 50th anniversary uh, CD box set of Hot Rats by Frank Zappa. It's called The Hot Rat Sessions. There were only six songs on the original Hot Rats album. This is six CDs. And to give you an idea of how much how much stuff there is, there are nine versions of Peaches and Regalia, which is probably one of the more popular tracks from the album. Frank Zappa in 1969, when this album came out, had just broken up the Mothers of Invention, the band he usually recorded with, and decided to go out and do something a little different uh, with, with different kinds of people. Ian Underwood is the multi-instrumentalist that uh, handles a lot of the keyboards and the sax and the woodwind stuff. Captain Beefheart is on this record. Uh, Jean-Luc Ponty, Lowell George is uncredited on a lot of the tracks. Shuggy Otis plays bass. Paul Humphrey, Max Bennett. As you may know, Hot Rats is considered to be an avant-garde classic by people outside of the United States. People in the United States kind of tend to think of Frank Zappa as the guy who did Joe's Garage, but those of us who who know and love his his music know that he goes a little bit deeper than that. This is, as I said, is considered an avant-garde classic. There isn't much rock, per se, on this record as there is jazz, and it's one of the first Zappa albums I ever heard that actually sounded sparkly. Most of the early recordings that he did with the, the Mothers I always thought they were recorded on a mono cassette deck. They just don't sound good. But this one is really well recorded. And, of course, the music is, is out splendid. So I'm looking forward to this. This is my big Christmas present to myself this year. It is Frank Zappa's The Hot Rat Sessions. For those of you keeping track, this was episode number 165 of The Next Track. Thank you very much for listening. Your comments are always welcome. You can start or join a conversation on this episode's show page at our website, You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. If you like the show, we'd appreciate it if you gave us a rating or a review wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can't leave a review, tell everybody you know about us. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time. We'll be right back.